The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. The species I hunt and the time of year, I think, really dictates um, when I'm using a certain dog. The old pointer, right, he's starting to slow down a bit. I really like using him early season grouse. A lot of leaves up on the trees. It's hot outside. He doesn't have near the coat that the lab does. Later in the season, when the birds are more jumpy, I like to bring the lab out who stays within that that 15 yards of me and doesn't necessarily bump birds later in the season. So I think it comes down to time of season and scenarios that you're working on. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch, rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. No two hunters approach the field the exact same way. That's why it's nice to have a vest that can be completely customized to fit your specific needs. Final Rise creates high-functioning upland gear that delivers comfort and balance that assists you chasing wild birds in wild places. The vest's unique lumbar pad and weight-bearing waist belt makes it too easy to keep going to the next horizon. Add in any of the awesome and functional accessories for the vest along with their new tactical apparel and you'll be outfitted with a complete setup that was proudly sourced and sewn right here in the USA. Check out FinalRise.com to order yours today. All right, everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. This week we have Jared Wickland, the PR manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Jared, how you doing, man? Hey, Nick, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's cold up here in the North Country this week. I can I don't know about where you're at, but it's been uh, yesterday morning. It was negative 25 here, and it's getting up to a balmy 16 degrees today so feeling wow. a little better <laughs> it's a little colder up there than down here we everybody down here is uh complaining about it today and i think it's it's only a low of like 28 or something down this way yeah we uh we like to we like to give folks down there a little taste of the pol- polar vortex once in a while <laughs> <laughs> well how's the snow been though with that cold are you at least getting the good snow that we hope for as bird hunters yeah i mean pro- probably probably too much of it to be totally honest with you. Um, you know, early, early on that first snow, I think everybody's, everybody's jacked. I try to clear my calendar and I always save a day for the first snow of the year. 
you know, those young birds have never seen it before. They don't really know what to do. They normally hold really tight. Um, but as far as like, you know, survival and things like that go, um, it, it's been a tough year so far. And March is typically, you know, end of February, early March is typically our biggest snow months up here. And we got a lot, we have a lot of snow on the ground. It's sacked a lot of uh, a bird habitat up here in the uh, in the upper Great Plains, upper Midwest. Yeah. Well, I'm not too familiar as, in terms of what the snow means for, for pheasant uh, up in your neck of the woods. I'm more familiar with the rough grouse. And it seems like, you know, the more snow you get with rough grouse in the woods, they can snow roost a little bit better. Is that kind of the same rule of thumb? It sounds like there's kind of a point of diminishing returns for pheasant, the way you put it. Yeah, I think, you know, grouse in general, they're talking rough grouse or sharp tail uh, or even Hungarian partridge to some degree. You know, they they like to snow roost and it's amazing how they can just put themselves into a snowbank and uh, during bad weather and they'll come out and grab a bite to eat and can go right back in. Pheasants are a bit different, you know, they require that uh, thermal cover habitat component that's extremely important to them. And up here, um, it's it's cattail sloughs, it's shelter belts to some degree, if they're designed correctly, woody cover. Um, so that's like, you know, dogwoods and plum, American plum and things like that. But we've had so much snow and some big blizzards that um, unfortunately, a lot of that thermal cover has has been plowed over with snow. Uh, um, so, and, and that becomes the, the worry this time of year, right? Is you get, we've had cold temperatures below zero here for the last five days and the birds are still making it. Like I'm seeing, I've got a food plot at my house. I've got a food plot out back. That's, you know, you design things, you, you plan for the worst and hope for the best. And this is probably one of the worst winters we've had in, in some time after, you know, sort of back to back to back, I would call little bit of a, a pheasant or upland bird boom up in, up in this region. You get average weather, you know, followed by good habitat conditions and pheasants can really take off. And that's yeah. what we've seen, seen this year in the upper Midwest. And so just as a pheasant hunter, we're, we're hoping that the snow kind of lightens up a little bit to where they can kind of get out and go do what they need to during the day. And hopefully doesn't weigh down the, the cattail sloughs. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Yep. Yep. They're, they're, you know, searching for thermal cover and searching for food too. When the snow starts to stack up, um, luckily there's a lot of native sources out there besides just grain that's on the landscape as well, left, left over from agriculture. But, um, yeah, you know, they, the one saving grace I would say is Minnesota just came off like one of its warmest Januarys we've had on record. We really haven't had any below zero weather, which, which, uh, I think means good things for the birds. Um, but we're still holding out to see how things are going to shake out. Um, we've got, we're going to go back up into 30 degree temperatures here in the next week. Um, hopefully for our big event, national pheasant fest and quail classic, it isn't 20 below, uh, cause that <laughs> can make things challenging too. But, um, yeah, the, the birds still seem to be fine. And the people that have been hunting in places like, you know, South Dakota, where they extended their season a few years ago, I'm getting pictures sent to me of birds when they're being cleaned that they have a lot of fat on them still. So they're, they're finding food and they're finding cover despite the conditions that we've had. Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, I, I, I don't know how familiar you are with this podcast, but we kind of preach and, and bang the good drum about native habitat and, and, uh, getting yep. the right cover on the ground and not relying on just ag or stuff like that. And, uh, you just said something kind of piqued my interest a second ago is that that native cover there's no ag on the ground right now so if you don't have the natives then then there's not really a whole lot of food on the landscape at this point 
No, you're absolutely right. And we've had people call in, you know, and, and say, hey, uh, does pheasants forever uh, provide provide corn, you know, to feed the pheasants? It's one of the worst things you can do this time of year is feeding the wildlife, particularly in a snowy winter like we're having. Like I, I've said it on a few other podcasts probably too as well and also in a bunch of newspaper articles, but like we've had snowplow snow drivers call my cell phone and complain of people putting – you know, well-intentioned people putting cracked corn out on the roads and the birds have sur- survived negative 40 degree temperatures and four days of blizzards and heavy wet snow, uh, just, just to be killed by a snowplow on the side <laughs> of the road from, from good intentions. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah, it's, it comes down to you. Like I said before, you have to, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. And when we have a bad winter like this, having habitat available and, not just the, the the quantity, but the quality of it structured right. Um, you know things like th- there's a lot of birds right now living in living in tree rows, living in shelter belts. Um, you know we recommend 12 to 15 rows minimum. Anything smaller than that, it can turn into not only a snow trap, but you know predators are using those uh, those lines as well. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that you, you can do, but you have to plan for them ahead of time. And really it comes down to habitat and that's why pheasants forever and quail forever exists. Yeah. Habitat, it always starts and ends with habitat. And, and to your point on, on the corn, I mean, it, I can't resist, you know, the road is paved in good in- intentions, right? So yep. literally yep. putting corn on the, on the road, maybe not the, the brightest idea, but like you said, they're trying people for, uh, you know, they may not have the the best results or the smartest uh, decisions, but you can't fault them for trying, I guess. You know, the, the passion no. from everybody leads everybody to trying to help with how they can. You know, exactly. And it's it's well-intentioned, but, you know, when people ask us, we say, well, you know, if, if, you're, if you're worried about feeding them, you know, uh, getting out there and putting a scoop of corn on the ground isn't going to save the pheasant population. Could it Could it save a bird or two here and there? Absolutely. At the same time, like, Freezing is a lot bigger issue this time of year when their cover when their cover is gone up because of snowpack. So freezing can be an issue. Um, predators focus on those areas. Like if you're putting a pile of corn out, uh, disease transfer is a big deal. So you everybody's heard of avian flu and what that's done to waterfowl. Um, there's been a couple pheasants that have picked it up more in some eastern states um, that I've seen, but. Um, disease, anytime you're bringing critters in a concentrated area is a big deal. Um, and then, you know, up in a place like Minnesota, where I'm at, um, half of our counties have restrictions because of chronic wasting disease and deer. So just doing that, um, puts you not in harm's way, but it, it, uh, it, it comes down to ethics and it comes down to the legality of it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how something so, uh, almost seemingly benign as putting out a little bit of corn when, when you aren't familiar with the big picture, what that can truly impact. And, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the avian flu? That's something I have not really dove into or discussed on this podcast. I know it was more prevalent in waterfowl, uh, but you said that it has made the leap over into pheasants. Where, where are we at on that? Is there any kind of advisement or instructions when it comes to this type of stuff right now? Yeah, we actually, if, if for folks that are listening, you know, if you go on to pheasants, if you, if you Google pheasants forever, avian flu, uh, or quail forever, avian flu, we did a really good blog back before the fall started. Cause the big worry was like, you know, people that are 
raising, raising pheasants or quail for dog training purposes, that's a really good vector for introducing it into the wild because a lot of it came from domesticated fowl, right? So your uh, chickens and other things like that, it occurs in the wild in waterfall itself. But um, the, the best source that I would point to um, is the, the federal government has, uh, I think it's USDA actually has a website or maybe it's the CDC that's dedicated to that where you can, you can type in uh, by spe- specific species uh, I think there's a map on there too that shows just where like de- decontaminated facilities are, are where avian flu came in and took out an entire flock. So if it's getting into chickens and turkeys and things like that, we were really worried about it early on getting to the pheasant population, but by nature, and that's where habitat comes in, right? You're spreading out, so you're spreading out birds amongst a lot larger area. Um, pheasants, wild pheasants, as far as we know so far to a degree, haven't really been affected. There were a couple, I think it was New York state, um, that, that were reported. Um, but I'm not sure if those, if those were wild or if that was, if that was from some type of, some type of release. Um, but as far as I know those, and I checked just a few weeks ago, those were the only pheasants so far um, that, that were reported. It's, it's a lot bigger issue for waterfall. And I just saw from Wyoming actually the other day that there's a ton of birds flocked up right now in that state that are, you know, succumbing to avian flu, which, which sucks, but that's part of, that's part of mother nature sorting it out. Exactly. And it's one of those things that's been on my list to kind of do a deeper dive or understanding on it. And it just hadn't really made its way to the top of the priority list just because it is primarily waterfowl. Uh, while I do a little bit of that, it, you know, it's, now that I know that there's been some pheasants linked to it, you know, I might might need to jump on that a little bit more and, and church my my understanding up of it a little bit better. I would say the I would say professional a professional biologist and disease and, and species is probably the person to talk to. <laughs> the, P, the PR guy here is just telling you what we've what we found. And we did interview a professor to or biologist. Um, I forget at this point in time who it was as, as part of that uh, overview of avian flu. But um, for folks that want to learn a little bit more about it, you can you can go to our, our website or type in, you know, pheasants or quail forever in Google and, and avian flu and that, that yeah. blog should pop up. And if you look at the show notes, I'll go ahead and make the link on that talking point of avian flu, the link to, awesome. to that article. So it's easy for people to find. Uh, but we did not come here, believe it or not, to talk about avian flu today. We're actually here to talk, uh, <laughs> kind of catch up on a, on a bunch of different topics and in, in terms of what you guys have going on with pheasant forever, quail forever. And, uh, at the time when this actually releases, this is going to be coming out the week of pheasant fest. So obviously it's a big time for you guys. Uh, more or less it is the Super Bowl for the upland kind of crowd or industry, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yep. But before we kind of go go full helmet into that topic, we need to kind of get to know you a little bit better. You know, you you mentioned you're in Minnesota. Where where exactly in Minnesota are you at? What kind of dogs do you run? How did you fall into pheasant forever? You know. Yeah, yeah, no, all all good questions. So, um, I I live in a, a suburb of the Twin Cities called Forest Lake, Minnesota. Um, for people that are familiar, you know, with the Twin Cities region. Where I-35W and I-35E, they split apart at the bottom of the Twin Cities and they come back together right at the top. And I'm about three miles east of, of uh, that, that top linkage where it comes back together just to form um, you know, I-35 going up to Duluth. Um, dogs, as far as dogs go, uh, I have a four-year-old black Labrador retriever named Luna. 
Um, and I've also got uh, another guy kind of in his twilight years, 11-year-old 11 English pointer named Jackson. Um, don't run them together. I, yeah, I get that. I get asked that a lot. Uh, I think there's some people that do, but I just, I find it too hard because they run, run at different intervals and different speeds. And, you know, the pointer works about 80 yards and in, and the lab works at about 15 to 20. Yeah. Um, so it, it can make it, uh, it can make it a bit of a deal to watch both of them in the field. But, um, I, I grew up in Minnesota on the shores of Lake Superior. I lived about three blocks in Duluth, Minnesota, um, from, from the Great Lakes and, um, really actually blessed, I guess, is the word I would use to, to grow up in an area like that. I think it's outside magazine, um, and some other places have labeled Duluth, like it's been a top 10 or the number one outdoor town, uh, for quite a few years. And for good reason, like you can go out your back door. Um, they've, there's turkeys all the way up there now, but I grew up on rough grouse. Um, that's probably my first passion. I would probably put pheasants, pheasants, a close, close second to that. Um, followed by, um, followed by prairie grouse and then, and then quail after that, just because I live in different regions. Right. Right. Um, but that's what I grew up on. I had the superior national forest and rough grouse hunting literally right out my back door. I mean, just millions of acres to go and recreate on. Um, we always had a cabin in Northwest Wisconsin. And, uh, although we've sold our cabin now, we go back and, rent a VRBO place every year. And my dad is going to be 73 this year. And we still take a week to bow hunt together. Um, and I, I was fortunate to have that as a kid, you know, a, a father that loved the outdoors, taught me everything I know and loved it as much as I do and still does. Um, yeah. so I, that's, that's an important thing I think for people that, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't take it for granted because there's a lot of people out there that want to get into the outdoors, but don't have that that link you know what i mean yeah and it's tough i mean i, I was actually it i grew up I, I didn't really hunt growing up the siblings we just didn't have time but I, I grew up fishing and so that was kind of my link to the outdoors but as far as the link to the uplands and hunting i, I didn't have that it was just kind of you know if you really want to go do it then uh, you're going to find a way to go do it and, and make it happen and that's that's kind of how it fell on me you know and i didn't I was my own bird dog growing up. That's what I like to tell people. Like I didn't, I didn't have a bird dog. I had a Siberian Husky that our neighbors next door were moving down to Alabama. It's kind of hard to have a, uh, pretty hairy dog like that and really hot temperatures. So Tundra, uh, he lived till he was 15 and, uh, he was my, he was my first dog and really got my first bird dog. Um, after I got out of college, married, married my high school sweetheart, Carrie, and I said, you know, I was working for pheasants forever, just started down in Iowa. And I said, you know, I need a bird dog. That's yep. one of the, one of the first, well, first things on the menu for me, I guess, when, uh, when I started working in my position with, with pheasants forever and quill forever. And it's just kind of, kind of grown since then, but I've always, always been an upland hunter. Um, I attended Luther college in Northeast Iowa, if you're familiar at all, um, as far as an outdoor paradise goes, um, Decora Luther College it's just it, it's awesome uh it's very high up on my list is one of yeah. one of the few places out there that I, I like to spend a lot of my time um a couple guys from work and I are going back down there to turkey hunt this spring and that's everything from turkeys and uh, pheasant hunting trout fishing obviously deer hunting is big there too so there's something special about that driftless region I, I was oh, up, uh, up by yeah. Decora for a little bit this year and I mean it, it's you're in Iowa 
you but you mm-hmm. kind of almost have to remind yourself that you're in Iowa. The the rest oh, of yeah. 85, 90% of the state is all flat ag and then you go yep. up to Decorah and it's you actually have some some grade variants and like you said a, a variety of different things to hunt and chase and it's I mean you even have some mountains in the area pretty much and it's uh, it's a pretty neat area. Yeah, people don't really like northeast Iowa, um, southeast Iowa to a degree too. It's got some big hills and and then of course the the famed Less Hills sort of in western Iowa. Um, it's not just a flat state. There's there's some cool topography to be had in a state like that and and that's. Um, where I really got hooked on um, all things hunting. So my junior and senior year of college in Decorah, I had my class set, schedule set up all day, Tuesday, Thursday. So I had Monday, Wednesday, and Friday off. And if I wasn't doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing, I was out hunting. Um, I made I, I, I made it a priority to, <laughs> to hunt all the time. Um, and I I've maybe told this story one other time, but we had a we had, senior year. We had a big Halloween party planned for our house, you know, and I woke up a little late the next, next morning, but we ended up that, that morning of the Halloween party, I actually went out and took my biggest deer, uh, with, with archery equipment and had that hanging from a tree in the front, front, front yard where all these people were and they're like, man, where did you find a prop like that? You know, I'm like, that's, that, that's not a prop. That's, that's a, that's, that's a real specimen hanging from the tree there. And then, you know, some people got freaked out and others were, you know, high fiving. So that's awesome. Cool. <laughs> yep. So I got to ask you and then, and then we'll kind of move on. So you got your bird dog, you got your pointer who's in the twilight as you, you just called it. And then, then you got a lab. Why switch from pointing to flushing and are you going to go back to pointing or are you just going to kind of alternate that way or do you have a, a preference one way or the other um i think i don't know quite how to answer that probably the, the species i hunt and the time of year i think really dictates um when i'm using a certain dog so uh for like for the old pointer right he's starting to slow down a bit i really like using him early season grouse excuse me early season grouse a lot of leaves up on the trees. It's hot outside. He doesn't have near the coat that the lab does. Um, and you know, he's giving you, he's, he's tipping you off that there is either a single grouse or a covey of them. I, was, I love hunting the opener in Minnesota. The birds are coveyed up and, um, it's, it's fun wing shooting. So I, I like using him early, um, as you know, later in the season when the birds are more jumpy, I like to bring the lab out who stays within that that 15 yards of me and doesn't necessarily bump birds later in the season. So I think it comes down to time of season and scenarios that you're working on, right? Montana, um, in beginning of December, um, you know, I was using the, uh, using the lab Labrador for hunting the thick, heavy cover. And then we'd switch over and we were hunting Hungarian partridge and sharp tails. You know, I'd, I'd let the, uh, let the 11 year old stretch his legs a little bit and point yeah. some birds. So I think it just depends on the scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of what I was driving at is each dog is kind of a different tool. Uh, e- even in just pointing dogs, you know, you have some that range further, you have some that are closer, you have some that are better retrievers in each scenario 
dictates on which dog is the best thing to use. And then kind of like what you're talking about, South Dakota and the conditions right now with them extending the pheasant season, that's that. If I had a lab, yep. that's when you drop the lab. I'm not putting a pointer to go work cattails weighed down by four feet of snow. And honestly, that was probably the biggest complaint I've heard from Upland hunters, uh, friends of mine that run dogs that you know are running a bit bigger, mostly pointers, is that um, they were having a hard time really, really getting close to the birds at all. Um, and when they when they did, it's because like they would meet somebody out on the road at the same time that was gonna maybe hunt this public area, and everybody's kind of looking over at you know a, a a shelter belt or some woody cover, saying you know what I think the pheasants are in there, but we're gonna have to work together to get them. And they would actually switch out dogs and go to more flushers that are closer working, and they would come at you know come at that cover from all sides was about the only way it was working in order to in order to get them uh, held in there. Makes sense, so, man. It, it, it yeah. truly does. So let's, let's go on and get into what's going on with pheasants, pheasant forever and quail forever. You, you just kind of talked about how on, on Jared's hierarchy of birds, whatever you want to call it, uh, quail, <laughs> quail are not amongst the top ones, but you also said it's kind of regionally based. Maybe you don't have the opportunity up there. Uh, what is your experience? working with, with quail of any kind, it doesn't have to be bobs or, or one or the other. Have you really had a chance to chase or, or hunt after any of them at all? I have, you know, I've, uh, I've, when I started working for pheasants forever and quail forever, uh, in Iowa in 2009, 2010, um, I've shot plenty of, plenty of quail in Iowa over the years. Um, I've harvested them in Nebraska, Kansas, um, Oklahoma one year we, we did our, um, rooster road trip and did sort of a quail angle, uh, for pheasants forever and quail forever. And, uh, that, that was, that was 20, I believe that was 2015. Uh, I don't know if you remember hunting that year, but it was a boom year for quail in a lot of different States, uh, including, you know, Oklahoma and Kansas. And they had, uh, you know, a lot of those different areas, especially arid regions are controlled, uh, by rain or lack thereof. And there was some good moisture that year and, and the birds really boomed. So, um, I've hunted mostly, mostly Bob whites and scaled or blue quail, I guess, however people define them. Um, I haven't done much for desert quail really. And I know, I think I mentioned this to you, um, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, but you know, my, my parents live in one of the epicenter. I mean, they live in Tucson, Arizona. They have for eight years. And one of these years I'm going to take the dogs and go down there, uh, and get after the desert quail and the Merns quail. Um, but for me, it, it just comes, I really like hunting late season, uh, pheasants and rough grouse up here, especially when we get some snow, uh, the birds are a lot more predictable. Um, I've got a lot of good spots that I've marked on Onyx over the years. And for me, it just comes down to, you know, with having small kids at home and being a, being a girl dad, if you will, here, uh, on the home front. And I only have so much time available and I like to elk hunt and deer hunt and do those different things too. So at the end of the day, I, I think it just comes down to the, the time that's available and, and the species that I've sort of grown up with. Yeah. I mean, it's an opportunity cost on everything we do, especially with time. And like you said, we all have families and, and work, but I know a few people to where it's like in the, in the spa, upland space, they want to get down south. They want to hunt bobs down in, you know, the southern plantations. They want to go to the, to the southwest and hunt the desert birds, but they're kind of in, in the boat that you're in to where it's like, well, I can go do that or I can stay home and do what I'm really passionate about and rough grouse hunt or pheasant hunt or, or what have yep. you. And then you kind of 
you have to pick and choose your vacation time and your availability to where do you really want to burn a week of vacation January, the first month of the year? You know, not everybody's yep. willing to do that. And that's probably the biggest thing, you know, and um, I will say that, you know, friends and upland hunters in general and people that I just know through being in this industry, I've seen a ton of people going after desert quail this year. Um, more, more so than I ever have, which I think is great. It's a, it's a cool resource. It's a great time. You can get down there in a little bit, little bit, uh, better weather than we're experiencing up here right now. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. It comes down, you know, for me, I, my mindset every once in a while is like, well, I got invited to go, uh, desert quail hunting this year, actually in Arizona. Um, and, but we're already going down there to see my parents in March. And then I look at, well, it's going to take us, it's going to take, it's a 24 hour trip to get down to where we're going to go. And it's 24, 24 hours back. So if you're not driving straight through, you're talking, you're cashing two days, basically right there, uh, yeah. or four, four days really for round trip. So I, I look at the, the investment of that and, um, I've got plenty of places closer to home here, um, that I don't have to take so many days away from vacation with, you know, family or elk yeah. hunting. Right. I just, just applied for Wyoming, uh, for general archery elk season this year and, and hoping to get it. And that, that in itself right there, that's going to be a nine day trip, yep. you know, so that, don't have unlimited time off. Yeah. It, it's, you know, poor us having, having to struggle with deciding on which trips we want right. to take and which ones we right. don't. But it, I mean, all that is a, it is a factor. You know, I just got back from Arizona last week at the time we were recording this and that 24 hour trip turned into a 35 hour trip with a snowstorm yep. coming through it. And so exactly, you, you know, it, it, you never know when those can pop up and that costs you an extra day or two of vacation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all, all of its factors and then it's, uh, you know, I, I have that wanderlust uh, bug to where I have a hard time pinning myself down or, or something that I like to go do year in, year out. Uh, yep. I, I, I'm always, yep. okay, what's the next thing? What's the next cool experience? And uh, and eventually I'll, I'll kind of zero it down into something to where every year it's like, this is what I do. But for right now, I'm always just wondering what's around the corner. What's that species about? What's this about? Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm too curious right now. And it, it crosses my mind too. Like I just had a colleague get back, um, from hunting Mern's quail in Arizona. And he was, he's like, it was great hunting every day, but this one particular day, he's like, we moved, we moved 16 coveys in a day and the dogs were on fire, you know? And then you start thinking about it and second guessing yourself like, man, maybe I should, maybe I should have taken, <laughs> taken those guys up on, you know, going on a, going on a trip with them. So yeah, no, that's. It's always floating around in the back of my mind. Well, if it helps your decision-making, we just went and I didn't get to see a, a Mern's quail on a day that I had my shotgun out. So I, I had the camera out, but I, I didn't have the shotgun. And so the day that I had the shotgun, we didn't get up a single bird. Uh, but that's just part of hunting. You know, you can go into these bird countries even on good years. And that's just part of it that I think, honestly, people need to need to do a better job talking about more and more is just because you're down there in the area that they're in does not mean that you're going to come across no. birds. It's, no, you know, it's, it's still hunting. Yep. It's, it's a wide area. Those things hold extremely tight and, um, you know, it could be dry conditions. It could be whatever, but yeah, it's, it's not all created equal across the board. Yeah. That's for sure. So speaking of bird numbers and, and quail and all that stuff, I think, uh, can you kind of help define regionally or, or structurally how 
the the company or organization breaks out pheasants forever versus quail forever? You know, when was this established, and and kind of how does it operate within within the structure of pheasants forever being that kind of the umbrella company? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So as far as structure goes, um, a lot of people, if you if you get our get our magazine, um, great. If you don't, uh, we'd love to have you, but. You've probably seen it before in the in the in the back. It kind of defines it a little bit. There's a there's a regional on the landscape section, um, and that's probably the easiest way to define it. Is we've we've got four sort of distinct zones um, that we split into pheasants forever and quail forever, and it's north, south, east, and west. And I would say the lines are blurred a little bit because a lot of people don't realize like Bob Whites can come pretty far north. And pheasants can go quite a way south, you know, like I think there's a lot of folks out there don't realize like in the Texas, Texas panhandle, when they get good moisture in Oklahoma and some of those regions, you can get unbelievable pheasant hunting opportunities. Unbelievable. Most of it's on, on private land on, you know, pivot corners and things like that. Um, and the same could be said for Bob White quail. Like we have resident populations in Minnesota. A lot of people probably don't know that, that in the, in the South Southeast region, I don't think they even have a season for them, but we do have them come up, uh, you know, this far North. So pheasants forever and quail forever as a company is split kind of North, South, East, and West. We've got regional directors that cover those and then state coordinators under them, biologists under them, um, our regional representatives, our chapters, um, so that's, that's kind of the way we split it up. And I get the question a lot, like when, you know, when did quail forever start and when did quail forever come along? And it was really, a lot of people remember in 1982, Dennis Anderson, um, wrote a article, uh, in the, in the pioneer press at the time about, um, the, the loss of pheasant habitat and have you ever seen a pheasant freeze? And it was because of that pheasant hunters saw that connection between upland habitat loss and declining pheasant populations. You fast fast forward quite a few years. Um, in 2005, in response to basically declining quail populations, and we were moving that way already, um, we said, you know what this this uh, this pheasant uh, mission that we've established through Pheasants Forever and that local model can work extremely well on the quail size too, and it's absolutely needed when you look at quail populations since you know 1970s, 1980s, probably lost more than 80 percent, and you know, given any year, and I know you've experienced it as a quail hunter, right? There's, there's ebbs and flows. Um, 2015, I think was our last huge, huge population boom year for Bob White. I mean, there were Bob White quail everywhere and we work on all the, the six native species, right? But, um, in response to continued quail declines, that's where quail forever came. Um, and, and, uh, our mission since then has been to conserve, quail and pheasants and other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and advocacy. Yeah. And I think it's important to underline that last little bit that you just said. You said pheasants, quail, and other wildlife. I, th- I think that that should be kind of underlined, emphasized, because I think that's where, especially when you're talking to the general public or maybe deer hunters or turkey hunters, uh, they may not understand just the the overall impact and and the shared benefit that the same habitat that is applied to pheasants and quail benefit them as as much. So I would I would just like to think that the listeners listening to this start emphasizing that more to the general oh, public. Yeah. A- absolutely, um, quail obviously are an indicator species of a healthy environment. 
um, that's been peer reviewed over and over again. Um, pheasants as well, you know, sometimes I'll get the, you know, our, our pheasants are an invasive species. It's like, no, they're sort of indigenous species. That was, that was an introduced species, if you will, that was brought over here. Um, and to some degree, I think they're a colorful barometer of environmental health as well. When we're doing good things for, uh, for pheasants, um, and we have a lot of them on the landscape, we know that water, water quality, you know, pollinators, climate resiliency to a degree, right? Like storing carbon all those different things play into it. And even though the pheasant or the quail basically represents who we are as an organization, um, we work on sage grouse, we work on lesser prairie chickens, we work on native, uh, you know, bee health, uh, monarch butterflies. We've established uh, over a billion stems of, of milkweed in the last, I think about seven to eight years here. Um, we work on, we work on, big game populations and mule deer corridors and places like Montana. Um, and then going up into like Oregon and Washington as well. And people are like, well, what does that have, to, what does that have to do with upland birds? Well, it's keeping grass on the landscape in those, in those wintering corridors for big game animals, right. Or take sagebrush, for instance, the, the work that we do on there, how important that is to big game hunters. Um, and you know, sagebrush biome species like the sage grouse it's it's a huge deal yeah i mean it, it's we say it all the time to we're blue in the face what's good for the bird is good for the herd and yep. and, and especially when it comes to pheasants and quail like you said that's kind of the, the banner i mean that's the name it's it's not wildlife forever it is pheasants forever and quail forever and so like you said quail forever kind of fell in 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 09 i'm kind of curious why, if it, there's so much overlap and similarities in habitat and how we go about putting the, the habitat on the landscape and what, what our goals are, why why wasn't Quail Forever just kind of absorbed or brought in under Pheasants Forever? Why why the two separate organizations? Um, I think, well, there's probably multiple answers to that. Number one, you, you mentioned the habitat. Um, there, are, there are distinct differences between yes. pheasant and quail habitat, right? So quail... Uh, whether you're talking some of the desert regions of the country, whether you're talking the historical uh, southeast and longleaf pine and places like that, where we're working on the amount of basal area that that trees dominate, um, you know, as succession goes, quail and pheasants to some degree, but especially quail are an early successional species. Um, and they've got multiple things that that they need that if you don't have it, they won't be there. One is shrubby habitat. Um, yeah, if there's not structure. a yeah, woody structure. If there's not shrubby, woody structure, habitat component for loafing, escape cover, whatever it might be, they're not going to be there. The other one, uh, the other one is 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 bare dirt. Um, they 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 require a bare dirt component. Um, so in I think hunting them's fun because like you can you learn to read the landscape, right? It just just like a pheasant hunter does, but I would say to a different degree, like. That's got uh, that's got crops there. It's got shrubby cover. It's got a bit of grassy cover. Where all three of those combine, like you know, I think those coveys are going to be in that area, or that specific landscape somewhere. So, I think the other part of it is too is that I would say to some degree, quail hunters are a different breed. I don't mean that critically in a good way. Um, you've got people that are absolutely dedicated to hunting only quail, and we see that I think a lot in the southern reaches of of quail country, um, where our staff live and work. Right. I think to a degree there's less, 
there's less quail hunters that come up and hunt other species. I would say there's a lot, probably a lot more pheasant hunters that are really just discovering, um, you know, quail centric areas. We just talked about some of them like the Southwest, right. And it's a way to help sort of extend that season. Um, so there's, I think there's two different sort of factors of individuals and they're just different birds in general that quite require uh, a little bit different habitat. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why we refer to them as pheasants forever or quail forever, pheasants forever and quail forever. Yeah. But they're two distinct organizations, I would say. Right. And, and I mean, those three factors that you just listed off, it's interesting when you kind of boil all this down to, you know, it seems like a, a pretty substantial topic of, you know, why the decline of quail. Uh, but really, it, it's not that wide gaping. You just you just summed no. it up within three, even starting with the specialist hunter over the general hunter. Back in the day, people used to just call themselves outdoorsmen, hunters. And now it's like, I'm a deer hunter. I'm a turkey hunter. I'm a pheasant hunter. I'm a quail hunter. And so that kind of generalist specialty uh, or, or mindset kind of went away to where, you know, we just talked about me. I, I just consider myself an upland hunter well, and we have different preferences and what we like to do, but ultimately I want to hunt anything and everything with my dogs. I don't really specialize in any one thing. So when yep. you kind of get those specialty core group of guys, it's nice because they're super passionate about that one species, but it also hurts in the fact of when you need to outreach to the turkey hunters to get them on board and help help you as well as themselves, it, it kind of adds an extra layer of difficulty almost. Yep. And I would say a, a couple different things on that. Number one, um, I think people would be blown away at how much as the, the public relations guy that, you know, I'll get uh, somebody fills out our email form online or calls or emails me and says, I don't understand why I don't have quail or I don't understand why I don't have pheasants. The landscape is the same as it was 30 to 40 years ago when I was growing up. And they basically just answered their question right there. It is absolute, <laughs> that is absolutely yeah. not the same. I mean, quail habitat, early successional quail habitat, like after a burn or, you know, a new seeding or something like that, you've get, you've got, you know, all sorts of uh, weeds and forbs and different things coming up and things are looking good and, and you know, quail take off. And then you get three, four years down the road and you're like, huh, you know, where, where did the, where did the quail go? Um, management is absolutely a part of maintaining, especially quail, but pheasant populations too. And the, the, uh, that old adage about like the landscape is the same as it was 30 years ago. It's I don't buy, I, I don't buy that. Our organization doesn't buy that. And the, I would say the natural resource, uh, professionals and, and community will not buy that either. A lot has changed and we're doing our best right now. We can talk about some of this to revert, revert back to, uh, you know, what things look like for good quail and pheasant habitat. Ab absolutely. Because whether we're talking quail, pheasant, or even rough grouse, because they fall in this early successional uh, conversation as well. And yep. specifically down here in the Southeast, I've spoken on it a number of times is, is we battle that, that old, over romanticism of I'm hunting my the same tree that my grandpa hunted uh, for deer. You know, my, my grandpa hun yep. hung that stand in that tree 30 years ago and I'm still hunting it. But in the same breath, the very next sentence, they're going to complain about deer numbers being down and they're not seeing as much wildlife. And so it's like they kind of answer their own question without realizing it. 
And, and to your point, you talked about woody structure. Well, if you don't have the early successional woody structure and shrubbery, which comes from managing the landscape and cutting trees yep. and stuff like that, you're not going to get that. Then you talk about bare dirt. This was, you know, the third one of the, of the three that you just talked about. The turf, grass, and fescue have absolutely choked out the birds. So to the untrained eye that only sees grass for grass and trees for trees, they're going to say that the landscape hasn't changed, but anybody that pays attention should know better. Yep. And it's, it's, uh, I would say, you know, things change in different parts of the country. Like when you're talking, uh, South or West Texas over New Mexico, over into Arizona, a lot of that limiting factor comes from that. The habitat there is decided by the amount of rainfall that they get. Right. Um, it's, it's a function of that, and we still burn and do things and, and take care of, you know, invasive species, uh, as far as, you know, trees and different things go fescue can be a big problem for quail. It just doesn't provide what they need. Um, you know, those types of things, but there are landscapes out there where you take the Southeast, uh, for example, right. They get a lot of rain. So we have to continually be burning and working management on those landscapes in order to keep that early successional component because it's sped up so much by the amount of rainfall that they get. Now you go further West in the Arizona and desert quail country. Um, that's a limiting factor there, right? When we get uh, good average or above average rainfalls, Quail tend to explode in some of those regions because they have, you know, seeds available and bugs available for the chicks to eat and good nesting cover. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, and I mean, there's a million different ways we can go go about this because we haven't even touched on invasives, and you know, we want to talk about fescue and blame turf turf grasses, but also we haven't even talked about the man-made issues on on some of the invasives. To where again, good intentions, we we try to do yep. good, and then next thing you know, we have a landscape down here in the southeast covered with Cerisia lespidiza that we thought was going to be the savior. Now it's not, and now we're struggling because we can't get funding to take that off the landscape because it's so hard to kill. Yep, yep. Yeah. Everything's everything. Uh, everything has. What's the word I'm looking for? Every every what's what's in physics? Every reaction has a equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's you can kind of compare that I think to what we're talking about with some of these different species that are put on the ground. But honestly, that's why pheasants forever and quill forever exist. I think. Uh, we work with the federal government, we work with state governments, we work with other nonprofits, other conservation groups, whether it's turkeys or ducks unlimited, um, uh, all the different, uh, all the different conservation and hunting groups out there. And funding is a big deal, right? Like we, I think we know what a lot of the problems are. Um, but again, you've got private lands, which we got, we know we get, need to continue to do a better job of reaching out to landowners and help them deal with those types of problems. You've got public lands that we continue to manage, and we can talk more about that. Some of the cool things that we got going on in the landscape. Um, and at the at the end of the day, um, we need to pro be providing a resource not just to, to private landowners, but public lands too, in order to manage for these species. And when we get when we have good habitat on the landscape. Uh, with average weather in a, in a given year, populations go up. Um, but our job is to help increase that carrying capacity by putting more habitat on the landscape and quality habitat, well, mind you. Let, let's continue down that path because I, I, I find the public versus private land management uh, interesting because it, it seems like it's dictated by state. Like almost each state has 
the funding tied up in a different way. Like I know Tennessee in the past couple of years, we've, we've had a couple instances to where uh, there were instances of public outcry and, you know, people did what we're, we're trained and taught to do to reach out to your local quell forever biologists or specialists. And ultimately what it was is it was on public land. And in the state of Tennessee, they don't, their funding isn't tied to public land management. It's more private land based. And so we kind of ran into a brick wall right out of the gate to whereas we weren't warned about that beforehand. You know, every state, every biologist, every organization has their, their own things that they're, they're in charge of. How is it that, that me as an upland hunter or a conservationist, how are we supposed to dictate that? Is it kind of spelled out or broken out somewhere specifically that's kind of easy to check for us? As far as working with a local chapter or working with Pheasants Forever, Quill Forever, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of figuring out like, okay, in the state of Tennessee, they're more private land-based, so there's not much that they're going to be able to do for, for public lands and vice versa. Yeah, I think it, it really depends on the states. It depends on the funding that's available. Um, and we're talking advocacy here, right? Yeah. Basically. Pretty much. Um, yeah. You know, advocacy from our side, I think it, it really starts, uh, it really starts in DC with some of the things that we work on. Right. Um, so the 2023 farm bill, that's going to get reauthorized here, huge opportunity for bird hunters. And like, that's where, you know, we put out, uh, action alerts for people where, getting our, getting our base involved, uh, with legislation and with legislators and hearing that voice, it's extremely powerful. And I, I probably, I don't even, it's, it can't be overstated. Um, like we got the great American outdoors act passed a couple of years ago. And that was thanks. Thanks in a lot to the members that we have. Um, but you're absolutely right in that some States differ in the amount of public and private lands habitat that they do have. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, pheasants forever and quill forever. I would say it grows from the ground. It grows from the ground up, and that's why we lead with our local chapters and that local model, which is a hundred hundred percent of the funding control comes from that, and they're the ones helping to help. You know, put biologists on the landscape to help not only with with private lands but with public lands uh, as well. And you're you're in Tennessee, correct? Yes. So, you know, this this might uh, hopefully it's not a shocker for you, but a good thing in that. Uh, we actually just posted new job positions yesterday for four new habitat specialist crews uh, in, or four new people to serve on a habitat specialist crew in the state of Tennessee. So that's working with Quail Forever, uh, the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, and the Southeastern Grasslands Institute um, to basically upgrade private and public lands throughout the state. Yeah, um, and those are the types of things that are needed in order to bring quail back in a state like Tennessee. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because it, that project or those people are being hired on. I think that's for the new push on the, uh, the Cumberland plateau ultimately. And it is, and, yep. and, that, and that's where I live. And that's honestly what I've already been doing is trying to manage native grasslands on my property as opposed to that. And, it, and it's been extremely challenging, I, I guess is the, the right word up until now, you know, this whole new push or, or new, new process might change that and make it easier, hopefully. Uh, but that, that's kind of what I'm talking about to where I'm, I'm actually involved in this and I have been for the past couple of years. And so like getting involved with the chapters and getting the reliable information and understanding that that chapter can actually do something in this regard, or that biologist can actually weigh in on this issue. It seemed like when it was actually, when it did come time to actually organize, 
it seemed like it was it was pretty challenging to to make that happen. Yeah, I would say, you know, to a degree that certain chapters in certain places probably have more pull than others just based on who's in the chapter. Um, and that's why I tell people, you know, if if you want to if you want to make a make a difference um, and use that local funding for for good and maybe advocacy as well. Right. We've got three people that work in D.C. alone. Um, we do have state coordinators and things in certain states, but for the most part, our, our biologists, our biologist side stay out of the advocacy portion, right? They are hired, um, they are hired basically to work with private landowners and, and public lands to some degree, um, to, to make things happen. So when we decide that, you know, there's a specific habitat project or something that we need to weigh in on, a lot of it comes down in the form of an action alert, which I'm really involved with writing as the, as, as the PR guy. Um, but I don't, not everything is as, as it seems. I think we pick and pick and choose the battles, um, in particular States as it, as it refers to wildlife habitat, whether it's public or private and the things that we're going to chase, um, in order to make a bigger impact in the future. Absolutely. It's probably what it comes down to. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of have to pick and choose like that. I mean, when there's not enough resources to hit, to hit them all. And to your point, you don't want biologists to become the PR guys and vice versa. You don't want the PR guys going to people's property and be like, Hey, you know, plant milkweed. <laughs> exactly. And like from a, from a, from a political standpoint as well, like a nonprofit, we can't, we can't play politics or take a political stand. And that's too, where like, we, we keep our biologists, we keep all of our staff out of those types of things. Um, you know, unless it, unless it's something, uh, that has to do with, uh, even, even not even a regulatory matter, um, but certain rules and regulations that come up, um, uh, we do get involved with some of those on, on state scales, but it really just depends on the yeah. situation. So I want to circle back uh, to something that you touched on briefly in talking about quail habitat and especially regionally based, especially down here in the southeast to where it rains a lot. We have to burn a lot more. We have to manage a lot more. It seems like, you know, down here, because of of those conditions, uh, we have to we have to turn around and do the management over and over and over again, a lot more, it's a lot more repetition. So where, whereas like you may cut trees and you might have a good rough grouse timber stand for 10 to 15 years, perhaps, uh, you kind of have like a decade there to, before you have to kind of readdress that one specific location, quail habitat, you do it. And it's like the next year you're already planning the next burn or, or get rid of this invasive. You got rid of that invasive, but now this one's popping up. Is that is that pretty much one of the biggest challenges of managing for quail and quail conservation is the fact that people are initially excited to start it, but because it's such a constant uh, readdressing or, or doing it over and over again, you you might lose some of that enthusiasm over a few years. I would say so. You know, when I'm not a biologist by trade, I'm I'm in the PR sector, obviously, but I I talk with a lot of our biologists and I work with a lot of them throughout the year. And you know, in places like the southeast, uh, a lot of them, you know, a lot of people like to, uh, from what our biologists tell me, split things up um, into pieces. Right? You've got you've got one piece that is on year one and then you've got a year two and a year three and year four and you're basically you're basically every year you know you're working you're working on the next piece to maintain uh that early successional habitat that's in there and then the other part of it too to answer your question is you know especially in the southeast we're talking bobwhite quail right right um 
the Firebird, and they're called that for a reason <laughs> yeah. because fire, fire, obviously, um, it's 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 the cheapest, probably, and most effective. Well, maybe not the cheapest, but the most effective management tool that we have on the landscape to manage big big sections of habitat. The problem with fire is um, between insurance and other things like that. In the past, it's been hard for landowners to put on the ground. Like, there's not a landowner out there that's that's going to you know say. I'm doing a prescribed burn today by myself. Like, right. It it's it's a it can be a scary deal for landowners, especially people that haven't done it before. Um, so we're coming up with habitat strike teams, um, and we're actually going to hire uh, in the next couple of weeks here um, a national prescribed fire coordinator to help work through. Um, I would say some of those limitations that you see and whether it's in the Southeast or anywhere else. Um, and that gets into, we've got prescribed burn associations now made up of chapters and landowners. Um, it really started in Nebraska, but we've got it in Missouri. Now we've got habitat strike teams that work on public and private lands. All of them have to have fire training, um, in Missouri, uh, Illinois, we've got some coming to Tennessee. We've got some on the ground in Georgia. So it, these things, you know, nothing, nothing happens fast in the conservation world. Right. It all takes time and quail forever. We're really starting to gain ground, especially under the working lands for wildlife is an initiative under the United States department of agriculture, natural resources, conservation service. And, uh, working with them right now, the Bob white is one of the defining principles behind working lands for wildlife. There are a lot of people and a lot of agencies working towards trying to restore Bob White's to uh, their their historical health, if you will. Like there's there's a problem and it's in the form of there's not enough early successional habitat uh, for them to thrive. And through fire and all these different things that we're talking about, we're helping to make a difference in that regard. Right. And, and fire, it's just one of... A one of many tools at your disposal, but when done right, it, it should save you on time and money and ease. But, but yep. it's also, that's also why it's important to be able to have a biologist at your disposal, not at your disposal, but just in general to help guide you because different plants, different times of year, burns get you different results. Yep. Uh, you know, it's, I was just up in Kentucky, uh, hunting a, a few weeks ago and they have so much lespedeza on the ground and the manager was, was, telling me that they're actually having a hard time with fire because that Lespedeza burns so hot, it actually like nukes everything in the soil bank. And so whereas gotcha. quail or the firebirds, usually you see a quick response from them on fire. They're actually a lot slower to come back in that specific area of Kentucky because of the Lespedeza essentially nuked everything in the soil bed. Uh, but what you're saying kind of hits home because I'm in that stage right now to where I have to do a spring burn here, here in a month or two. And, uh, I'm, I'm in the very beginning processes of trying to figure out what that looks like, how to do it safely and, and correctly and, and all that stuff. It is a daunting task if you're not familiar with it. It is. And, and that's why, that's why we're forming more prescribed burn associations to, um, and, you know, hiring more biologists in general that have that background and training to, to help people kind of from A to Z, whether it's fire or whether you're looking to get involved in some type of federal or state program, uh, habitat program. Um, our folks, I would say that's, that's the best thing, um, since sliced bread at pheasants forever and quail forever is that we've got the second largest amount 
of biologists in the United States for like an organ organization or entity, second only to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I think we're probably getting pretty close to, to, to surpassing them as well. But it's a, it's a proven model for us that our biologists can go out and provide complimentary or free technical assistance to landowners and land managers that want it. Yep. Well, sign me up for that program. Send somebody my way. Have them call me whatever, because <laughs> I'm there. Uh, I want to I want to get into as as we kind of start winding this down. Uh, obviously, the the time of this episode coming out this weekend is Pheasant Fest. What what all do you guys have going on at Pheasant Fest that's more quail focused? Because as as we've already talked about, you know, it's mainly pheasant is probably the the number one bird that people are going to be looking at when they go up to Minnesota at at this trade show. But the quail that's a that's a big piece, and like you said, very passionate followers. So what what do you guys have up your sleeves in terms of quail focus? Yep, we always try to infuse uh, we always try to infuse quail to our show. It doesn't doesn't matter where it is. It's more hot and heavy, I think, as you get down into Kansas City and places like that that we've been in the past. But we've got uh, some great offerings this year, I think, for people that are quail focused at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. So um, the Quail Classic, Pheasant Fest Quail Classic itself is February 17th through the 19th. Um, and there's some there's some cool things happening ahead of time. So number one on Friday, um, February 17th is the Working Lands for Wildlife Quail Symposium. So just talked about Working Lands for Wildlife uh, under the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, and we're bringing in some of the top quail biologists in the country. Um, they're giving basically seminars on opportunities for quail management and working landscapes. Uh, Dr. Dwayne Elmore from Oklahoma State is going to be talking about temperature considerations for quail managers and what that means from some of the quail research that they've been working on. Um, we've got Dallas Ingram, who is the state quail coordinator for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, talking about exactly what we talked about in this podcast, Southeast public quail lands, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of implementation. Um, and uh, so that's going to, we've got some of the top quail researchers in the country that are going to be presenting at that symposium. So that starts at 1 p.m. on Friday. Um, some of the other things we have going on throughout the weekend, uh, we've got a, a, a couple of different things. Uh, one would be on the main stage, which I'm actually in control of a little bit um, and planning out is we're going to be giving out uh, a couple different awards. One of them is going to be the Far Farmer of the Year recipients, uh, which we've got uh, a pair of farmers that are actually from the Southeast that we're going to be giving an award to this year uh, for their work on quail habitat. So you can come and learn more about that on the main stage. That's going to be on Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Um, the bird dog stage, as we talked about, uh, most people have all the pheasants forever and quail forever. 85% of our members have a dog and it's one of the, one of the, it's that gateway, gateway drug, if you will, into the <laughs> right. uplands, right? Um, Rick and, uh, Rick and Ronnie Smith, um, are synonymous with pointing dogs and, uh, they've always been a mainstay of our bird dog stage. And that hasn't changed at all. They're going to be back this year. Um, if you're a if you're a pointing dog or flushing dog, we've got uh, I would say probably some of the like top six to eight trainers in the country that are going to be presenting at Pheasant Fest this year. Lots of good things there that are going to be quail oriented as well. Um, the Habitat Help Desk is another area of the floor where if you're uh, especially 
for you, Nick, right? You're coming coming up to Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic this year, looking for things to do. One would be to visit the Habitat Help Desk. We're going to have our top biologists there that can pull up an area view of your property. They can look at the soil types, things like that, and help plan a conservation plan for your property. And I think that really plays into everything that we just got done talking about on this podcast, honestly, right. um, is, is our role in helping people uh, helping influence uh, private lands conservation programs. So stop, stop and see if you're coming up and whether it's for pheasants or quail or turkeys or deer, um, our staff, uh, our staff are working all those different corridors. So um, come up and, and see a biologist at the Habitat Help Desk. Um, one other one would be the Public Lands Pavilion. Uh, it's making its third appearance at Quail Classic this year. And uh, Basically, Public Lands Pavilion celebrates the country's 800 million acres of forests and prairies and mountains and public lands in general that are open to all Americans, including you and me. Um, there's a couple of cool ones in there. Uh, Quail Forever and Trout Unlimited uh, are going to be doing um, a seminar together talking about uh, how we can help create quail and trout on public and private lands through the work that we do. Uh, there's a public land quail coast to coast talking about uh, if you want to go hunt in different areas of the country for different species, um, that's going to be on there as well. And one that it might be interesting to quail hunters is we've got a big panel coming. Uh, I think Katie McCaleb from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, is going to be the moderator for it. But talking about the issue of corner crossing on public lands. Have you, you ever dealt with that, Nick? I haven't. I've, I've heard about it. I'm sure I'll come across it at, at some point, but I've never actually come across it in the field where I'm looking down and that checkerboard just isn't lining up the way I need it to yet. Yep. Yep. So there's uh we've got some experts uh, from those, from those States that are involved with the corner crossing debate right now. Um, they're going to be talking about that at the, uh, at the public lands pavilion. And then, Lastly, I would say is our sort of our path to the upland stage. Um, there's some pretty relevant topics there for quail hunters, everything from hunting gear basics to improving your shooting technique um, to planning your own bird hunt. And we've got a lot of experts that live in quail country uh, that are going to be on that stage as well. So when you take that into addition, the bird dog parade that kicks it off on Friday at 11 a.m., um, the fundraising banquets that we have. Um, the, uh, the public lands film festival or upland film festival that we're going to be doing. There's just a lot of great things and over 400 unique exhibitors for, for people to see and, and do while visiting Minneapolis. So enough stuff to, to keep you busy for a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Probably more than a weekend. <laughs> and if you bring in the kids, like we've just got a lot of, a lot of awesome things for the kids to do in the BB gun range, archery range, fishing simulator, uh, you can work on making seed seed balls to take home and, and plant for pollinator habitat, um, painting. I mean, there's just, there's all sorts of cool things for kids yeah. to do too that can keep them busy for hours. Yeah. So. Well, wh while I have your attention and nobody else is listening here as a PR guy from Pheasants Forever, I don't know how well it would go over, but is there a way that like in the future years you could like knock it over into early March instead of end of February? Because we still have hunt season going on down this way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about that. We actually held it. We held it in March last year, um, which worked out OK. And we always look at I think we had these we had this specific date uh, for Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic locked in about like three years ago. It fills up extremely fast at the venue we're at. So. Yeah. Um, but yes, that is a consideration we're looking at and how can we attract, uh, more quail hunters. Um, I know several people that are going to be, be down in the Southwest, um, hunting during the show 
and uh, they aren't sorry for it, which is fine. <laughs> I wouldn't be either. But uh, yes, we are going to be looking at uh, maybe in the future adjusting the times a little bit because there's shot show in Vegas, and there, there's a whole bunch of things going on, uh, sort of during this during this winter time. That oh, it's it, it's trade show season. I think shot shows already going on or already happened, and then the same weekend that for Pheasant Fest, it's it's NWTF as well as yep, turkeys, uh, yep. as well as sea, uh, seaweed down in in South Carolina. It, it's kind of like if you're actually wanting to go to these trade shows, you got to kind of pick and choose uh who you want to support pretty much yep yep no i agree but yes that is that is one thing that we are going to be we're going to be looking at in the future yeah well good to know so when when are you going to get down this way and uh, try your hand at some southern bobs or or the southern unicorn and rough grouse i know that you got a passion for them up your way boy i'll tell you what i'm uh i'm up for coming down anytime to be totally honest with you i think as as I've grown older, um, and, you know, and had had kids, and I've had to stay a little bit closer to home. My kids are six and eight um, now, but I'm starting to get to the point where I, I'm getting back into hunting quite a bit more than I was when when we had newborns at home. Um, and I think I've found like a lot of other people, my my path to the uplands has kind of changed a little bit. Where I'm just trying to do a lot of a lot of different things and a lot of different species because that's what I like. So yes, I would I would love to come down sometime. Um, you know, for, for you or listeners that ever want to come up to, uh, Minnesota for, for a rough grouse pheasant combo, um, there's a lot of, lot of places to do it at and we'd, uh, we'd love to host you. So. Well, you, you just let me know when you want to come down and, and you, you just feel like you, you need to eat a little bit of punishment almost and, and try and <laughs> a, a, at least a good comparison, right? You kind of get the yeah. relatability to where you live up in the Mecca of, of rough grouse country or territory. And, and down here, it's uh, what you get in a day. I probably get in a year. Is it, what would you define those as gently rolling hills down there? Or are we climbing mountains or what, what's up? Oh, no, no, we're We're going to the Smoky Mountains. They're, they're, All it, right. it's not nearly like as that. bad as the mountains out West <laughs> as far as elevation, but, uh, yeah, you definitely need one leg about six to eight inches longer than the other, just so that you can scale these mountains. What five, eight, I think I'm up for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to let me know when you come down, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I enjoyed this conversation, getting to know you a little bit better and, and, uh, talking a little bit about what you have going on at Pheasants Forever and, and Pheasant Fest. Cause I, I, I'm excited to go and check this out for the first time. Yep. And I'll, I'll, you know, for any listeners that are coming up, I'll, I'll put this down for you too. If, um, we do have a few complimentary tickets available through a ticket code for Pheasant Fest if anybody wants to come. So you can go to pheasantfest.org, uh, go to go to the ticketing portion of it. And when you put in um, when you put in your tickets for the show floor, you can type in Fest 23, F-E-S-T 23, and get a couple complimentary tickets uh, to come on in the National Pheasant Fest and Quill Classic. Check it out if you haven't. It's the Super Bowl of the Uplands, and it is really a fun time connecting with other upland hunters and, uh, you know, the organizations and industries that help make it all happen. Yeah. So, so that's a good code to have. And then correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you guys do a a specialty code with NAVDA? If you're a NAVDA member, don't you have access to Pheasant Fest through that as well? So that's another option if people are interested. Yep. And that's NAVDA 23. Yep. Perfect. Yep. Well, is there anything else that we need to touch on before we wrap this up? I don't think so. Appreciate you having us on and, um, yeah, it's just uh, it, it's going to be an interesting year, I think, all around. Whether it's for quail, for pheasants up here, you know, we don't know quite yet whether it's going to be a rebuilding season or not. After sort of kind of three boom seasons in a row, we had really good up on bird hunting. 
Um, we've have had moisture in other parts of the country, California, maybe too much in some places, uh, but they do, you know, do have desert quail in some of those areas. And um, for the most part, I've heard Mern's quail has been really good hunting this year and parts of desert quail in general. So um, we're, we're working hard on our side to restore public and private lands, bird hunting uh, for people to go out and enjoy. And uh, if you're not a part of this organization, I hope you'll consider it because 90 cents of every dollar goes right back into the ground for habitat. There you have it. Well, Jared, I appreciate your time and, and coming on and, and sharing some of the information. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely be checking in here soon. All right. Thanks, Nick. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jared Wickland of Pheasants Forever. That episode was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, as well as North American Poodle Pointer Society. So be sure to check those out and support the show by supporting the sponsors that bring you the show. That being said, I always enjoy checking in with some people from uh, these nonprofit organizations as well as uh, what what they're trying to do, putting habitat on the ground uh, and getting us more birds to chase. You know, it, they say they always ask for support because they truly need it. They need the $35 a year. They can take your $35 and hit that multiplier in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different uh, uh, programs through the government, PR funds, what what have you. They, they can really leverage that $35 and make it stretch because we – that kind of pops up in a lot of conversations as well. If I mean, $35, is that really doing anything? The answer, it is. Yeah, it is. It actually is. It does make a difference. So by all means, continue to support these organizations uh, that, that are in line with your goals and, and what you hope to see in, in the, on the landscape in the future. But ultimately, I, I want to challenge you as as the listeners of this i want to challenge you to do more than just the 35 dollars. you know that's all great and, and and good and i'm probably going to catch flack for this but i would say that uh follow through and actually showing up and, and participating and helping and things are probably at this point i would say you know funding is important but just as somebody who really tries to participate in in these actual uh, projects and, and paying attention to what's going on, I'd say just showing up can be more important than just the $35. Uh, case in point, I, I actually just helped uh, the Quell Forever chapter here locally in Nashville, uh, Music City Quell Forever. I, I just helped them along with TWRA uh, do a burn on, on public land the other day. And uh a handful of us showed up. You know, it, it, it was a weekday. There are outside factors that prevented other people from probably joining us. It would have been a little easier. Uh, but ultimately, you know, 
when they put out a call to action for everybody in the chapter, they ask for people's help and you're, you're only having four people show up, uh, you know, the $35 a year is great, but ultimately you're, you're hearing more and more often from people just because they sign up, they, uh, they're saying that they're a conservationist and, and ultimately I'm not saying that they're not, it's, it's important for all the reasons I just listed, you know, they can leverage the money in ways we can't, but ultimately I'm saying try to get involved further than just the $35. If that's all you can do, we all have lives, we all have families, we, we all have obligations and work and, and all that. So like, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to get on my soapbox to make you feel bad. But if you can, if you can work in attending a burn this spring, you know, hunting season is over. You're getting into training season. Get involved. There's projects going around all over the place. Just look them up. Again, this isn't to guilt you or strong arm you. It's just pointing out the obvious to where these people need actual bodies sometimes in addition to just the $35 a year. Uh, again, not trying to belittle the $35, just putting that in your ear, a challenge, get involved. And also it's an opportunity to get to know your local agency or DNR folks, your biologists, uh, the people that work for Quail Forever, because when something actually pops off, as we talked about on the episode, each state and each chapter has different uh, things that they're, they're really involved in within the state. So it's, it's kind of important to know who to talk to and when and about what in case something that kind of popped up in Tennessee this time last year happens again. You're not, you're not just trying to go bang your head against the wall and call the wrong people ultimately. So uh, anyway, I, I hope that made sense. And, and again, not trying to guilt you, but ultimately that conservation needs more than just writing a check every year. But if that's all you can do, keep doing it by all means. I'm not trying to belittle it. Uh, so with that being said, uh, moving on the, uh, I'm just going to jump into housekeeping real quick. I'm going to try and keep this outro a little shorter. Uh, as of right now, I just uploaded the, uh, BSing with GDIY number five. That is the monthly bonus episode I do with Nick Larson over on Patreon if you're interested in uh, hearing more about that, checking that out, we actually take real hunting clips, recordings, video recordings, and GoPro shots. We put them on there. We screen share. We break down what it is, why we're doing this, why we're not doing that, what went into the hunt, all that stuff. So if that has any interest in you, Larson has a good clip on grouse hunting and approaching to uh, set yourself up for a good flush and shot. And then I have a clip uh, on some Hungarian partridge that kind of dictates uh, when to not use woe. It's a, it's a good indication of that. So if you're interested in something like that, lessons, and, and me and Larson kind of go around a whole bunch of different rabbit holes and talk about a bunch of different stuff that we don't normally talk about on shows. So again, any interest, check that out. Also, uh, extended outros. I'm trying to do extended outros after every episode, and I'm just picking a topic, rambling, giving my thoughts, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I, I pick a different topic every week. This week, I'm going to go into a little bit on uh, the importance of tailgate checks, as well as just routine checks after a hunting trip, because I actually just had a, uh, a, a situation or a, or a uh, problem come up with Rachel and, and her foot after getting back about a little over a week, week and a half removed from Arizona, and uh, it's just now showing itself. So if you want to hear more about that and how that transpired and my thoughts on that, then uh, go join Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com 
forward slash gundog yourself, $5 a month. It's essentially like buy me a beer. And uh, you get all that. You get you get extra bonus uh, episodes. You get early release stuff for the YouTube videos that uh, we're just now starting. Speaking of which, the Rough Grouse video on our YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do so. It helps us out a lot. But the feedback we're getting from everybody, it's starting to really kind of kind of cycle through. Everybody's kind of sharing it from from uh, with a lot of people, and we're getting a lot of great feedback. So that means the world to us, and, and glad you guys are enjoying it. Besides that, uh, this weekend is Pheasant Fest. I will be going to Pheasant Fest for the first time. I have honestly no idea what to expect. Don't really have that many plans. I'm just going to kind of be floating around uh, meeting everybody. That's why I'm going. I want to meet a lot of listeners. I want to meet a lot of people that I've met through the podcast over the years, put faces with names, all that fun stuff. So if you're going, you want to link up, by all means, reach out to us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Gundog It Yourself. I can't tell you where I'm going to be, when, but if it's something that if you're if you're in there and you just you, you want to meet me or whatever, grab a sticker, what whatever, uh, drop me a message and maybe we can figure it out. Uh, with all that being said, typical stuff, uh, leave a five-star rating and review. It takes five seconds. It's free. Not like you have to join Patreon to leave us a review means the world to us. We read all of them. We appreciate all the feedback and, and you taking the time. Uh, follow the social medias, which I just listed. Uh, YouTube is new. Again, go subscribe on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, we just started. As you guys know, just just getting new subscribers is a, is a, is a big deal. So uh, by all means, take five seconds, hit subscribe if you don't mind. And uh, same thing on the podcast. Hit subscribe and share with a friend. It means the world to us. Uh, As always, thanks for hitting play. Thanks for hitting download. It means the world to us. And uh, we'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.